Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is the best way to advertise online if you want to reach culture vultures, if you want to reach readers, if you want to reach people who like art and music, people who know what's going on in the world of cinema. You want to reach those people, advertise with Litbreaker. You do that and you hit all sorts of great culture websites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Full Stop, Large-hearted boy. The list goes on. Check out litbreaker.com for more information. This is an advertising network for smart nerds and uh, culturally oriented human beings. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. here we uh, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is makeshift entertainment. This is not owned by Rupert Murdoch. Uh, hello out there. How are you today? I'm Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you. Uh, I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California, as usual, and uh, I'm a little sleep-deprived. Can you hear it in my voice? Do you hear the fatigue? I feel a little bit like a zombie right now. I'm in good spirits, but uh, I'm operating on uh, minimal sleep, about three and a half, four hours. Uh, I went to bed late. The last two nights have not been good for me, sleep-wise. My daughter got up in the middle of the night. Uh, she said she had a, a bad dream. She climbed into our bed. This was two nights ago, and then last night I went to bed late. I woke up early. I'm not entirely sure why. Uh, it didn't even have to happen. There was nothing pressing happening. But uh, there I was at 5.30 a.m. I opened my eyes, and uh, I was at full speed for some reason. And so I rose. And uh, now, later in the day, just like a few hours later, I find myself in a bit of a uh, catatonic stupor. 
And this is the condition in which I've chosen to talk with you. My guest today is uh, Shane Jones. His latest novel is called Crystal Eaters. Uh, that's not a person's name. <laughs> it's called Crystal Eaters. I sort of uh, emphasized the wrong syllable on that one. It's called Crystal Eaters. It's a novel. It's available from $2 Radio. It's very nice to have Shane here. He and I are going to be talking momentarily. First, however, uh, I do have some uh, mail that I would like to read. It's, uh, it's some pleasant mail. It's emotionally pleasing mail. It's emotionally pleasing to me, anyway. <laughs> and uh, this letter comes uh, comes to me from a listener named Kevin, who writes, Dear Brad, my name is Kevin, and I'm from Syracuse, New York. I just wanted to thank you so much for doing the Other People podcast each week. Uh, and actually, I'm going to interrupt here. I think uh, I'm going to add some piano music to this. Not, as a, not necessarily uh, to underscore the emotional content of the uh, email that I received, but rather to underscore the emotional content... Uh, of my uh, of myself as I read this. Does that make any sense? It's about me. It's not about the letter. That's what I'm getting at. So let's get some music going. Dear Brad, my name is Kevin. I'm from Syracuse, New York. I just wanted to thank you so much for doing the Other People podcast each week. I go on an hour-long bike ride each day and listen to one of your episodes. They've been really helpful and insightful and have given me a lot to think about. I'm an English lit major at Potsdam College. Yeah, is it called Potsdam? Potsdam? Potsdam College. And your podcast has made me realize how much there is to do out in the real world and how many possibilities there are with my degree. One of my favorite episodes was the interview you did with Spencer Madsen. After listening to that, it really got me thinking. I thought about what he was doing and figured, why the hell can't I do the same thing? So uh, with some time and planning, I finally did it and started Ghost City Press with the help of some of my close friends. Uh, I was reading my friend's writing and wondered why everything that gets published, and then in parentheses he says, pretty much, has to be out of New York City or Los Angeles. I mean, there are so many people writing who aren't in those two cities who are producing some really great stuff that for the most part is simply being overlooked. My goal is to publish that writing. Uh, I mean, we're just getting started now, and I'm still trying to figure out how the business really works, but listening to your podcast has definitely helped a lot. It is really interesting to me to hear about all these writers and how they got started, as well as what they have to say about the business end of the industry. So I started the press this summer, and we're hoping to have our first release out by the end of August or early September, and I hope that one day we'll be notable enough to be on your show. But for now, I'm content with listening. Uh, I just finished another episode this morning and wanted to email you to tell you how much I appreciate what you're doing and what an inspiration you've been to me. So thank you. Best, Kevin. So that's awfully nice. Thank you, Kevin. I love hearing stuff like that. It's great. Makes a, makes this thing feel like uh, worthwhile when people are getting something out of it and especially when people get something out of it that then leads to something like proactive in their own lives. Start a press. Why not, right? Do stuff. Make stuff. See what happens. I think that's a good approach. I mean, obviously, right? I'm, uh, clearly, I'm uh, in favor of making stuff. I make this thing every week. So, uh, I appreciate it. I love hearing from you guys. If anybody else wants to email me and, and wants to gush about my show and what a positive influence it's been on their lives, you can email me at letters at otherppl.com. Uh, or if you would like to pan the show, 
and uh, ridicule me. You can you can do that as well. Whatever you want to do. You want to tell me a story? You want to whine? Just email me. And then I will uh, read your letter on the air and publicly humiliate you. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My guest once again is Shane Jones. Uh, his new novel is called Crystal Eaters. It's out there now from $2 Radio. Very pleased to have him here, and I had a lot of fun talking with him. So let's get the show on the road, ladies and gentlemen. This is Shane Jones, and his latest novel, once again, is called Crystal Eaters. So I'm in Albany, New York, and I'm on the 14th floor of the Alfred E. Smith Building, and I'm overlooking the New York State Capitol building. Okay, what are you doing? This is your day job. Yeah, yeah. I, I work a, a very exciting 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. So this is, I'm at my day job, and this is my, uh, I'm using this as my lunch break. Okay, so what do you do, I mean, for the day job? Uh, I work for the New York State Senate. And I do, I mean, I don't even know if it's worth talking about. It's, it's kind of boring. I mean, I was brought on as a writer, editor, and I do some logistics type stuff, administrative type stuff. Okay. Um, or like, so is it like, so, is it like political speech writing or is that different? No, 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 no. I mean, I've done editing on like, you know, how you get those annoying, well, you're in California, right? Yeah. I don't know if you get like those brochures in the mail from like your local senators and things like that. So, yeah, sometimes. I, I've I've done editing on like, those kind of things. So, are, are you a political guy? No, 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 not not at all. No. So how do so how do you wind up working at the state senate? <laughs> so, well, my brother-in-law, who's a, a really big political person, he pretty much got me this job. And there's a lot of free time involved, and there's just a lot of space, and um, it doesn't drain me like other jobs would. Yeah, we'll so see. It, that's why I asked. Yeah, I think that's why I know I, you were talking. You talked to Spencer Madsen like a while ago. And I think you guys were talking about like how you know like day jobs can really affect like or how do you find like a, a really great day job 
like does it exist where you get paid really well but then you get a lot of space like this is that job okay well, that's, that's why i like, asked seriously. no yeah because i'm always uh, i'm always curious about writers who are working a nine to five but are, are still able to be productive because it has to be that unless they're like unless you're just blessed with some sort of genetic wiring or like ADHD or whatever. Um, and right. I, I don't mean to belittle uh, ADHD. I know it's a tough thing to have to deal with, but I'm talking about like one of you know one of those people who's just got like an, a manic level of energy, and uh, you know what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, I know people like that. Yeah, they're constantly like they're publishing like something every single day. It seems like. Yeah, I am. I'm just envious of people who like just like don't turn off or like don't need rest. <laughs> Yeah, but you hate those people a little bit too. Well, that's the thing. I mean, like, and I, I, I used to be more that way, but it was more of like a, mm -hmm. it was like a wish I was trying to fulfill. So I was kind of like mm -hmm. willing myself to do it. But then the older that I've gotten, like, I'm now at the point where it's like I like eight hours of sleep. If I can get nine, even better. And like, uh, I, I got to just own that because I think there gets there can be this like competitive weird thing where people love to tell you how little they how little sleep they need. Uh, mm -hmm. you, ever, you, ever, you ever been around that? You know what I'm talking about? I don't know about competitive, but yeah, I guess people, I mean, I've been around people, you know, like, I don't know, they say they write like until two, three in the morning or people that get up at like three in the morning to write. Like, is that kind of what you're talking about? Or, yeah, or I mean, or... I've always been, I'm a good sleeper. Like, I mean, now I have a, a son who's uh, going to be two at the end of September and uh, he's a terrible sleeper. Yeah. Like he's just awful. So like I'm sleeping less than I ever have in the last two years. And I actually find that it gives me like a weird, I guess like what you said, like manic energy. Well, yeah. Like I have like, a, I get a burst from not sleeping where before, like I would sleep like 10 hours a night. Yeah. That's like, that's kind of, and I would feel guilty about it too. Like yeah. I would go to bed at like nine, 10 o'clock at night and then get up at like seven or eight. Like that was my schedule. <laughs> well, I think like the competitive thing, it's like when you talk to people, like people telling you like, uh, I always hear this from friends of mine who are coming down with some sort of illness, like they get the flu. They always like tell you while telling you that they have the flu that they almost never get sick, which I think right. is, it's like a wish or I don't know. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you're saying. So anyway, I'm glad you found this job and uh, that's nice. That's rare. You know, to A, be making enough money to support yourself. B, have a job that allows you the freedom uh, to, you know, to do the creative work and doesn't drain you. So uh, I, I, I take it you, you've had experiences in the past with jobs that did drain you? Yeah. I mean, I've worked a bunch of different jobs. Like my first job, I was a lifeguard. And my, my very first job, I was a lifeguard at a, like a really seedy motel outside of Albany here. And <laughs> I, I loved it. And I was reading like a lot of Bukowski at the time and stuff. So I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. And then I realized like, I mean, it was like really depressing. And like there was like you know, people living at the motel, which I didn't really understand at first. And like, you know, people going through divorces and a lot of drug problems and people would like commit suicide in the rooms. And, and I was a full-time lifeguard all day. So I would open the pool and close the pool. I've and that was like my first, like, well, I was yeah, gonna, it was, I was going to say, I've never been, sorry. At, I've been, no, I've never been at a hotel where they had a lifeguard. Yeah. They changed the rules in New York state since then. It was a really small pool too. And it made no sense to have a lifeguard there. And, like, I mean, I guess I didn't find it draining because I did do some writing while I was a lifeguard. But, you know, like, there's a guy I referred to as, like, uh, Morphine Man because he said he used to do liquid morphine, which I don't even know if that exists. And he was, like, going through a separation with his wife. And he would just drink all day next to me and, like, tell me stories. And 
there was like a woman who was a heroin addict and he gave her money to do laps in the pool naked. And I was, I was like 18. So, <laughs> so it was like, I thought, I thought it was kind of cool, but then also like towards the end of it, I was like, Oh my God, like this is how, this is how people live. And then like that's, and then I didn't want to read any kind of Bukowski or like realist fiction after that probably. Right. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the thing about it is that like, it seems like this, uh, kind of cool adventure and you've got this job where you just get to sit in this chair, but then to bear witness to just human dysfunction in close. Yeah. But it, and people are half naked, you know, like the, but even that, even that was, that was draining, even though it was probably influential. And then, um, I w- worked at a bookstore for a couple of years and then I also worked at, um, Lowe's, which do they have it's like a home Depot. Yeah. Sure. Um, and I, uh, I got my forklift driver's license at Lowe's, but I only, I only lasted like a few months there before I quit. Um, I worked at a pool store for a while, a pool store in Buffalo, which you can imagine is <laughs> interesting. So yeah, like in all those jobs, I don't think I ever felt really like I had space. Even the the bookstore job, which I used to refer to as like almost like an MFA, like the idea of working at a, a bookstore for three years and being around books, it's good. But at the same time, like I don't think I really had a ton of time to write because I was like working at the you know, the register or, you know, when Borders had like a cafe and I was making Java Kula milkshakes for people. And it was just not, not like this job, like a, an office job can be really beneficial in a, in a weird sense. Well, just cause what, it gives you structure or. Yeah. Structure. And I feel comfortable and it feels like a real job. I'm not stressed about money. Um, and I, I do have space, even if I come in early, to do a little. Well, I'll probably get fired after this. So I'll, I'll probably listen to this and be like, "Holy shit!" Like, <laughs> well, we gotta let him go. And I've been here for six years. So, yeah, it, it's. I guess it's just mentally. How do I? Like, I don't. Ha- I, I don't think about my job when I go home. Even working at like the bookstore or something, I would think like, "Man, I gotta show that." cart and children's section tomorrow like i would think about it like that's going to be a pain in the ass like so just like i don't have that so even when i go home it's it's freeing i mean i have a wife and kid which i guess you have to put a little work into that too sure so when do you do your your creative writing like do you have a schedule no not right now i mean i'm kind of all over the place i used to get up really early that was that was my thing um uh, during my lunch break here, before work, during maybe downtime, <laughs> during work. I mean, anywhere. I'll just I, I can I can turn it on and off pretty fast. And do you write so, when you work? Do you write fast? Like, are you a quick, prolific person when it comes to your creative writing? I I can be. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what you consider. I know you've talked about like word counts and stuff, which probably nobody wants to hear about. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I could do like. I think during like the second book, I was right. I could do like three, four thousand words a day, That's and good. then during like other stuff, um, you know, if I can get like five hundred words a day, that's that's good. Sure. And I mean, are you outlining yeah. before, or are you just in? in no, it? no, no. You just intuit. Nope. You intuit it. Yeah. yeah. And and your work, just, I mean, it tends toward like the fabulous, the fantastical. It's like really strong works of imagination, as opposed to the realist fiction, as you mentioned earlier. Um, like what is that? Is that like your, your, uh, tendencies? Is it like the tendencies in your creative writing reflect your tendencies as a reader or do your tendencies as a writer, um, are, are they like a reaction against, you know, the, the real world all around you? Do you know what I'm saying? Kind of like a relief it's, from yeah. the pool job. 
No, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think when I, well, I first started out writing like just poetry and reading poetry for a really long time. And then I went through a whole phase in college where I only read um, realist type fiction. Like I was really into Raymond Carver and Ernest Hemingway. And even I would even read like the, the Iowa workshop, like books, like those stories, like anything that I like that was <laughs> realist fiction. I would, I don't know why I, I would read all of it just because it seemed like that's the thing that was getting published or like, that's what people would do. And then I started getting into weirder stuff, not until probably my mid twenties. And then, um, it just felt natural. I think that was like the key. Like it just felt like, even when I was writing, I don't know, like I'm a, privileged middle to upper class white kid in upstate New York. Like I, why am I reading about like down and out, down and out, like Raymond Carver, like, <laughs> you know, idolizing like Bukowski and stuff like it's not natural, like at all, but I do have a really good imagination and I can tap into it and I can like build worlds and stuff inside my head. So like when I finally read that type stuff and like, you know, a book like 100 years of solitude was really big for me. Um, it just felt like I, like something had completely opened up, well, you know, they, and like that. It just it just felt right, you know. Well, yeah, and then I mean, I can see like too, like uh, there's more of a sense of play, maybe uh, more fun. Like, like I think sometimes when you yeah. when you yeah. read a lot of heavy realist fiction, it can be really gripping and wonderful, and um, you know, there's obviously a place for that. But I think that like if that's the if that's where you're swimming, just to continue the pool metaphor, and that's like the only water. <laughs> You should can you can you should continue the pool met, like through the entire interview just always. <laughs> we'll move into like, that. Should be your thing. Yeah. So but there I, you go. I'm just saying that like if, if that's where you are and that's where your headspace is, it can maybe be kind of confining. And if you don't have like a if you don't have down and out stuff to write about, or if you haven't been in like a war theater, um, and you're a like you said, you're a privileged guy who's had a pretty good life, <laughs> and whose day to day yeah. whose day to day isn't filled with like you know drama like crazy drama or the stuff of no my life is pretty boring brad yeah uh, it's pretty it's pretty lame but yeah it never felt i mean i know I, i've been like harsh on like mfa programs and you know like we keep saying realistic fiction or like that kind of stuff or like kitchen sink realism um but i i really i mean i'm really influenced by that stuff i, I think that's a big part of my writing it's made its way in there somehow so like I don't I don't totally knock it, but I I do get bored with it, like especially modern type stuff or like stuff that's coming out that just reads like a diary entry or something. Like it, it does. I just think a lot of it's garbage. Well, so know? like what like, about like what about Canalsgard or or is that how you pronounce <coughs> pronounce it? The, my, yeah, I don't that? know. Uh, I started reading some of it online, but I just I I, I don't know. Like I just I guess I. I would have to read more of it and you know it's unfair to, to judge that book because people really love it and I think the reason why they love it is because they want to feel close to something and even more they want to feel close to someone and if they can read a book like that in someone's life like that's really that's what people want now and if that's that's fine like I don't know if people get it like I don't want to read some dude's 3,000 page book about his everyday life like I just don't I don't think anyone's really that interesting. Well, and plus, like, you're probably living a lot of it. <laughs> well, maybe not all of it. I shouldn't say that. Your experience and his experience are different. But, you know, like, like I say, like, I, if you're in the day-to-day, -day, 
you have your day job, you have your family, you're doing that stuff. You know, I can understand like emotionally and, and just, uh, aesthetically wanting to be in other worlds or do stuff imaginatively. That's uh, yeah. I guess it's all, it's not totally right though. Cause even if that, that book, my struggle, like nothing's like straight realism or whatever. Like if that guy's talking about his, you know, getting his four kids off to school, like once he has that experience and then he goes to write it, it immediately changes when he writes it, you know, like he can't, like the language doesn't, it's not a direct mirror. So I guess it still is like a little bit, it's still altered. Like there's still some like imagination there. So I'm just thinking out loud now. Yeah, no, I get it. I'm kind of envious. You know I mean? I, I'm kind of envious of him. He's such a good looking guy. He's got like that, like rogue Scandinavian. He's yeah, got this, I know. This, this cigarette. Like, I know. Fuck? I was ta- I went to a party um, in Brooklyn over the weekend, and there was uh, I was talking to my friend Sylvia, who's a foreign rights agent, and she like loves him, and like she was talking about the book, but then she was like, and he's really charming, is and it, the way she said it, and I was like, ah, now I, yeah, I get it. Is it like, wait? Is her? Is this Sylvia Molnar? Yeah, yeah, that's her. I know her from Twitter. I don't know her at all, but it's so weird that like you mention her, and somehow I know who she is. But um, yeah, she was at she was at the party. There's probably a bunch of people you know there at the party. And I talked to, I did speak to Spencer. He tried to call me because we've never met, and then he hung up on me. I think so. I never spoke to him. But <laughs> he's not afraid to just pick up the phone and call somebody. He's not afraid at all. He's got to, he's got to pimp that book, man. Yeah. He's out there with it. <laughs> no, he will, he will hustle to the ends of the earth. And there's something, there's something you just can't like, eventually you just have to submit to him in, in a strange way. I feel like Spencer. he's likable. He is. That, he's very likable. I like him. Yeah. Um, uh, so I want to ask you about poetry because I'm interested mm-hmm. in like your art, you know, your, um, apprenticeship or whatever you want to call it because you didn't do the MFA as you mentioned. Um, and you started as a poet and your ambitions were kind of confined to poetry, at least for a while. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I think when you do that, when you're writing poetry, you're not thinking about making money. You're not thinking about, uh, fame or maybe you are, I don't know. It just seems like, it seems like there's humility kind of built into, to writing poetry and trying to publish poetry. (laughs) Whereas, whereas like writing like a novel, you know, you can like allow yourself to dream a little bit more and. Uh, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. But as training to be a writer of short stories of, uh, novel, you know, novels and whatnot, it seems like it's a good way to train because it, you, you have to get down to word by word, line by line compression. Um, like, do you look at it that way? Do you think it was instrumental in getting you, uh, you know, uh, where you needed to be in order to write the longer stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I- I've always viewed it as like a a progression from like poetry to short stories to novels. Like even when I was writing, so I wrote poetry from age like 17 to 23. I'm 34 now. Um, But from 17 to 23, I think I just, that's all I did was write poetry and, and read poetry and like nothing else. But I always in the back of my mind wanted to like do things that I like were bigger or or get, try to, to get into short fiction. And then, the novel always seemed like the, the final thing to try. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, what you said, like, as far as like a training ground, I think maybe less and less people are studying poetry now or people, they go directly into like a fiction MFA program, which is fine. But um, I think Jesse Ball, he's a, a writer I really admire and a friend. 
he talks, he, he's a poet and I think he went to Columbia just for poetry, but he's mentioned before how like, you know, writers should really read poetry and other people have said it too. Um, it's actually nice. I, I, think, I, li- I like to read poetry, like just as like, uh, you know, like a, a mind lubricant. <laughs> that might not be the best yeah. way to put it, but you know what I'm saying? Like it gets you sort of uh, ready to write whatever you're going to write. Uh, and then you can, and you can take it in fairly quickly. So I don't know. I like to have a good book of poetry around when I'm working on something. I find it. Yeah. I, I always, I always loved it. I had like a, a poetry chat book. I think it was published when I was like 18 or 19. And, uh, the publisher was this like crazy woman out in somewhere out in California. And she actually was like printing the chat books at, um, wherever she was working. I forgot, had like a kind of printer and she got fired for printing the, the chat book. And then she sent me the contributor copies in the mail and she sent them with, um, a little thing of weed for me to smoke as like a, a thank you. I mean, this is like how like <laughs> CD it really was like, it was, I don't even remember her name, Teresa something, and the press was Visa Septic was the name, and the, it was just the whole thing was awful. There's like I don't I don't even have a copy of it. I, I saw a copy a long time ago. I had it, but yeah, so that that's that's where I started and could only go up from there, I guess. Yeah, right. But uh, and you were 17, so you were in high school when you were starting, and um, at 30, 35- I think it was like maybe eight, maybe 18, 19, but yeah. So high school or college, like when, when were you starting? Like you, it seems like you were leaning writerly, uh, fairly young. Yeah. I mean, I was writing poetry in high school and then I can't, I don't really remember. So like I started sending stuff out, must've been like in college right away. Like even, I think I went to, I originally went to school for physical therapy, which didn't work out like at all. I I remember (laughs) it was just a terrible idea. And, uh, it was at a small school called Damon and it was outside of Buffalo where I ended up anyways, going to SUNY Buffalo for English. But, uh, like one of the first major like, uh, projects was some like big lab thing I had to write up and I can still remember like the exact table I sat at. And like, I worked on this thing for like hours and hours and I got a C minus on it. And it was at that moment I realized like there's no way I'm gonna get through this program. <laughs> like there's just like it's just not gonna happen. So I pretty much failed out. Um and that's probably like the turn of when I started thinking writing more seriously. like I really honestly thought though, like, you know what, I'm gonna write myself out of this. Like I'm gonna totally like I was really that delusional. Like I thought I could write poems and like eventually uh, and like move on to fiction and stuff and I, I would just totally make it somehow. Well, but there's the two thoughts here. First of all, it seems like there's a, there's got to be some amount of delusion in any creative endeavor, like especially you know, totally, especially when it comes to writing and poetry. <laughs> like if you're actually thinking to yourself, "I'm going to write my way out of this and like make my break somehow through these poems," like you're deluded. <laughs> but it's a, it's an insane thing to think. Yeah, yeah. But then then at, like at the same time, like I find that there's something sort of charmingly practical. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, humility in the approach that you took where you're like, I'm going to start with poems. I'm going to, you know, work on those for some years. I'm going to, then I'm going to get to short stories. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes writers in their hurry to be, uh, famous or published or to break through or whatever, you know, they'll, they'll jump right into that novel right out of the gates. And, um, you know, you, I guess you learn your lesson one way or the other, or you just write a shitty novel that somehow gets published. But do you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it seems like a, a a measured approach. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I mean, the idea of writing a novel like before, I mean, it seemed like there's just no way, like even to write, 
even like a, sh- a two or three thousand word short story seemed like there's just no way I could do it. Like it had to be like worked up or I needed to get to a point where I, I liked the poems I was writing or like these images kind of clicked or like something was like working. I, I, I don't know. It's hard to, <clears throat> it's hard to describe. And like what you were talking to about, you know, being like, you know, writing and being delusional or, you know, what part of it is being completely delusional and then like, what part does your ego play play into it? And then, you know, maybe people, are you just hardwired to, to do this stuff? Like, do you have to do it? Like, I don't know. I don't know what the, the answer is. Yeah. Well then, so for somebody listening out there who might be, you know, in the middle of their apprentice years or, in, you know, in the middle of their poetry phase or whatever you want to call it, who's thinking like, how the fuck do I write a novel? How do I write a story or a story collection? Like, what was it that changed in you that enabled you to do it? Like, what was the shift? Was it like, you know, some sort of craft lesson or was it just kind of coming to terms with the amount of hard work that it takes? Uh, um, well, I mean, first of all, if you're if you're consistently thinking, like, how do I write a novel or how do I do it? And you're not giving up on that idea, you'll probably eventually do it. Like, if you're that obsessed with the idea, like, you'll somehow, you'll just get there. Like, it doesn't matter how messy or, you know, crazy or depressing it seems. Like, you'll probably do it. Um, for me, I think one of the main things is, like, always being really inspired by, by books or, like, getting really just into random authors or seeing, like, people my age publish stuff where I was like, wow, like, that, like I love this person's thing. Like, that always, I think, like, kind of kept me going. And I think that's that's really important. I mean, if you're being inspired on a day-to-day basis, it'll 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 keep things going. Do you read easily? I mean, do you are you reading constantly? Is there always a book on your nightstand that you're into? No, um, like not this year. Like recent, I don't know what's happened. Like I I haven't been able to concentrate on anything. I think this is something you've talked about in yeah. previous podcasts. Or like, like giving up on books, which I don't like to do, but. Uh, I mean, I've been doing it, and I've I haven't concentrated on something in in a while. It's like kids. it's been it's kids, man. I'm telling you. Do you think that's what it is, really? Well, I mean, I just the thing about me. It's well, kids. It's not the kid. It's the time. But the time is related to the kids, and so, uh, and then it's fatigue, and then it's all the other shit that I got to do. But like the t- the only time really that I have, I find to read, is at night. And as soon as I read, I fall asleep because I'm so fucking tired. <laughs> You got to give up on some of these podcasts. You're talking to all I know, these, I know. these boring writers. You got to, yeah. So it's just you I, know, it's it's a function of time. But like you know, when I do read something that I'm really into, like uh, I'm I'm looking at my desk, uh, you know, like Department of Speculation, which I've talked about on this show, was a book. <clears throat> I tore through it earlier this year, and it was such a joy. I was like, oh god, I need to do more of this. But the the truth for me, and I don't know if this is unique or if it's uh, a common experience that people don't like to talk about, is that. I have a fu- I have a hard time finding books that I really love. Like I'm right. not I'm not a person who like loves a lot of things. Like it's got to be the right book at the right moment, you know, for whatever is going on with me or whatever, you know, mentally or I don't know. It's just hard for me to dig in and to find a book that really right. grabs me. Well, yeah, I, I have, have you always been like that? Um, I, th- I think to an extent, but less so earlier, you know. I think maybe yeah. like my early 20s I was I was really voracious and I was also living a kind of a more monastic like life and I would get up early and read. And I was also, I was a serious young literary man. (laughs) 
right. you know, and then just life kind of intrudes a little bit and I, I've changed and things have changed. And yeah, that, I think that's, what's hard too. Like I, I think it's easy to like blame the books or like think the books are boring or the books are bad, which I even, I'll say stuff like that. But the problem is like, I'm, pro- I'm the problem. Like I'm boring. I don't think like the, the, the book, like the text, someone's worked a really hard time on that to, to, to get it to where it's at. So there is some value in it. There, there has to be, or, or, you know, we're really fucked. Like everything's really bad. So like, yeah, that, that's hard to deal with. Like, I'm not, you know, maybe I, like I'm getting old or I'm getting boring or I'm losing some kind of like something in my brain isn't clicking on. So that's, that's a little scary. It is. Yeah. It makes me, I'm, I'm like feeling scared as you say that. And then I'm also remembering like this line that I think it was like Updike who said uh, something to a student or somebody who, you know, was interviewing him or whatever that, um, you know, who, who said something to the effect of like the classics bore the shit out of me. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, you don't read the classics uh, because you love them. You read them until you love them. And I, yeah. was, I was like, oh, shit. Because, like, I, I got to be honest. Like, a lot of the classics, I'm like, I can't get through this. Like, I can't. And that's an embarrassing thing to admit because these books are, you know, hailed. And, you know, they've survived through the millennia or whatever the, you know. Mm-hmm. But I pick them up and I'm like, what's the big deal? Like, I, can't, this is, I'm, I cannot do this, you know. And Right, yeah. It, and then the thing is that it's with me. It's not the book. Right. Or is it the book? <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I think it's you. I know it's hard to, I, I really, no, it's us. Yeah, it is. It's just too easy to, to, to blame the book. Like, I mean, there, there has to be, there's, there's value in it. Almost. I don't know if I want to say this. Like most, most published books are something that's been worked on a really, you know what? No, I'm going to stop talking. It's not true. I, I don't know. Well, no, I'm going to totally get I'm going to give up on that. that well, no, but it's like, it's, an, it's, a, it's like, uh, it's interesting to think about because, you know, I've heard also people say like, you know, you shouldn't read anything unless it really, just like read what really interests you. Like don't read what people, yeah, what yeah. people tell you is the canon. Don't read what you think you're supposed to read in order to be like of the moment. Like everybody reading Knausgaard or whatever, whatever it's merit. I always kind of, rec- I'm like, part of me sort of recoils when everybody's reading the same book. I'm like, uh, like uh, I'm going to read something else. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, and I don't know if that's the right attitude. Um, and then I had another, so maybe there's, there's no right or wrong. Yeah. You know, I guess so. But I do. I, it's something, it's something that I, I struggle with. It's my, that's my struggle. <laughs> no, no. That, yeah. That is your struggle. Yeah. So, okay. So what, uh, where are you from? Like originally, are you from New York? Yeah, I'm from the upstate area. I mean, I've lived pretty much my whole life in Albany or around Albany and been five years out in Buffalo. So that obviously I like, I like depression because of upstate New York and, and Buffalo. I like suffering, but, uh, with plenty of trips down to the city, down to New York. How long, so, does, it, how long does it take you to get to the city from Albany? Like two, two and a half hours. So you just get on the train? Yeah, the train station. I can almost see it from where I am right here. Okay, so that's. I mean, that's okay. So, like, how often are you down in the city? Like, like monthly? Um, before, I mean, yeah, it was it was a lot. I mean, since Julian was born, like way less. Um, I've been down there maybe like three times this year. Okay, and like, but the- it's close by. Yeah, it's it's there, which like, you know, it it feels good. I mean, I have a lot of friends there. And you never have had an uh, like an interest in living there. I did, yeah. Uh, my wife and I talked about it for a while, and 
one big thing. I went to a, it was like a poets and writers like dinner or something. Like when uh, my first book, Light Boxes, was published, like I, I got invited to some like random like dinners. This never happens now. And like, not at all. But, uh, you know, like it was where, you know, all these like agents and r- big writers were and stuff. And I, I talked to like a bunch of people about the idea of like moving to Brooklyn and uh, I guess I'll say her name, Rivka Galchin. You probably have heard of her. Sure. I was talking to her and I think it was her. She, she was like, you know what, if, if you want to like, you know, come and if you want to move to Brooklyn, um, that's great. But if you really just want to write, stay up in Albany, Well, yeah. like you're not gonna, like, you know, like you're not gonna get any work done here. Like people are, there's just so many parties and there's so much to do. Like you don't actually do not everybody. I'm not going to blame everybody, but like up here, there's just so much space because I don't think many people even like know how to read here. So what you're saying is move someplace where people are essentially illiterate. (laughs) No, no, I shouldn't have said that. That's that's mean. I think living somewhere, I guess everybody's different though, because totally, I have so many people that totally thrive in like a, you know, a a Brooklyn, New York type environment and they love it. Yeah. And, and, you know, they, 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 they have to do, I mean, you're in, you're in Los Angeles, right? So I don't even know. I've only been out there once. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I mean, literary, like from the perspective of literature, it definitely feels like you're far afield. I mean, New York is, I mean, Brooklyn is where it's at in terms of like lots of writers living in high concentration and lots of like big, you know, that's, it's, it's still New York. Um, Los Angeles has a lot of creative people and a lot of uh, writers, but, uh, you know, it's film and television has primacy here still. So. I, you know, I, mm-hmm. what you were saying reminds me of a conversation I had on this show with, I think it was Lauren Grodstein, who lives downstate in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I want to say South Jersey, but she had lived in Brooklyn or had considered living in Brooklyn. And we were talking about this very thing. And she was and she was um, expressing, like, what a relief it is to live someplace where, like, not everybody is a writer or trying to write a novel or trying to do that hustle and how, you know, mm-hmm. you have a little bit of, like... Like, like separation from that and the space that it creates, you know, physically from it uh, also creates maybe some mental space and some creative space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, I, I, I totally agree. Like, I don't, I, I think personally, I, I don't think I would thrive in, in Brooklyn. Right. I mean, I've been productive for like the last five years, like living here as far as like publishing books and stuff. And I think if I lived in Brooklyn, I, I think, I, I don't think I would have produced that much. Right. Like there's, there's just no way. So, Cause I would just be, I'd be like drunk all the time and like <laughs> going to parties and like, you just walk around. Like we were just there last weekend. Like there's just so much to see and you just hang out. Like that's what they, the days went so fast. Cause it was like walking around park slope and everybody, it's just so nice. And you're like, yeah, this is just what I would do. I would just like check things out all day. That's yeah. what I would do. Right. Well, here I have like hardly, you know, personally, like there's really nothing to see. So I'm like, <laughs> all right, I'm going to I'm going to get inside my head, which I, I do really easily. And then I can get this work done and feel good about it. You know. Right. Well, if it, whatever works for you, man, you know, if you've got your thing, if you've got your formula and you're and you're happy there. And I'm imagining that, you know, the other thing we haven't talked about is that it's probably a, a lot cheaper to live in Albany than it is in Brooklyn or New York. City. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, way cheaper. So, you know, that's the other thing is that in addition to walking around Brooklyn, like looking at shit and hanging out, you'd also be like 
constantly having to hustle for dollars just to get, you know, rent paid or whatever. Yeah, I'm not sure how people do it down there. I know, like you said, a lot of people hustle, but I think in like publishing and, um, you know, like people that work in publishing, there are a lot of like just privileged white kids, honestly, that come from money. Sure. Well, I mean, like, I- they, I'm serious. Like they, they have like, not like trust fund type stuff and they're like, they would never talk about it, but they're, they're like all set or they have like income from their parents or they have some kind of like deal with their rent or like that's, I think that's really true. Like you, you start looking into people's backgrounds or talking to people and then that's, that's why they're there. Exactly. Well, and I think too, I mean, publishing just generally, you know, a lot of these publishing houses, uh, when you look at the history of it, were started by privileged white people who like had all this money and they're like, what, let's do something for the, for the common good. Let's start a publishing house. Right. You know, like, and it's Which like, isn't, it's not a bad thing that they were like, no, no. People. But, I know it gets like, that's a big issue now. I mean, my, my wife is a, gender studies feminist and you know she's she can talk brilliantly about all this stuff which i can't but um yeah it's not a bad thing like you know privileged privileged white people like um it's good in a way that they have space to create what they did um even somebody like burroughs is like the ultimate he was like a privileged white guy. I mean, he had money from his, his family from, it was like the Burroughs adding machine. And he had, that gave him space to create all those wild books. And there, there's plenty of other examples also. Well, yeah, no, it's like they either have, yeah, it's coming from somewhere. Like people have benefactors or they have really good luck or they get like that big book deal early in their career that they can float on for like the next seven years while they, you know, get their next thing done or whatever. But it, it seems like when you read literary biography, uh, that they're, there's almost always something, you know, it's always coming from somewhere and people get a break involving money. Um, and often just when like shit is about to hit the fan, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, but it seems, you know, you gotta, you gotta find a way to float. And I think like living in a place like Albany, um, or just any place that has a cost of living that is manageable makes, uh, you know, a writing life more manageable. Yeah, absolutely. It's tough going down to the city too, because like, what, here's an example. Like when I went to that party, um, it was like really early on in the party. And, uh, I was just like, of course, wandering around by myself and, uh, right across the river here, I can, I can pretty much see it. There's a small city called Troy, Troy, New York. And it's like around here, it's considered like the cool, like up and coming area. Um, the only other area is Hudson, which is like 30 minutes south. So like I kind of went up to this this woman and there's like another guy there talking. She asked me where I was from and then she goes, "Oh, I was just in Troy. What a shithole." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh." And then I was like, "Here we go with the the New York like upstate." <laughs> and she's like, "Oh no, I didn't mean it like that." I'm like, "Well, <laughs> like but that's really that's usually my experience. Like the first one of the first times I went down to New York was with a girl that lived there and uh I was like 20 and like every single person that she introduced to me was like, Oh my God, you're from Albany. Like, well, like, why would you do that stuff? And like during one of the interactions, I actually started crying. Like I was so upset. Like it was too, we were in like an office with these, like, it was like these like two like power women that like they were working for like vanity fair or something. And they started <laughs> laughing about Albany and like tears just randomly came down my face and they started apologizing. I was like a grown man and I had to, I had to walk out. It was so, so embarrassing. I don't think I've ever told anybody that. Well, I'm glad I came so that, first. Yeah, so that's um, that's that's one, I guess, negative of 
of it's yeah, it's it's tough, man. It's tough going down there. So no, so what you say is like you don't, you never like you try not to say Albany. You just say oh, I'm from upstate and hope that they don't follow because upstate the people in the city is like Yonkers or like White Plains would be like really really far. So saying Albany, they're like they think there's like a, like the weather is totally different. Like even though it's only two and a half, they think it's like colder and it's like it's crazy. Well, but I feel like New Yorkers feel that way about everywhere other than New York City. You know, it's like if Los Angeles. There's just, there's just New York and Los Angeles. Yeah, there's nothing in between. But they give, they, they yeah, talk, they talk shit about LA. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like it's oh, it's a. It's I like, I like LA. I, I spent a, I spent like a day or two out there with uh, Ken Ballman and a couple of people, and I, I liked it. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird, it's weird, like it's a weird city. Like something about the light. Yeah. Like the way. It feels like dreamy and dark. I don't know. I don't want to. Talk. I'm just going to sound terrible talking about it, but it had a really cool feeling. I, like I did. Yeah, I like it here. Yeah. I mean, I guess. I mean, I wouldn't be. I guess I wouldn't be here for 13 years if I didn't find something redeeming about it. But um, it is interesting. And did, I'm sorry if uh, if you've already said this, but uh, are you from Albany? Like that's where you were raised? Yeah, like outside of Albany. Like I live in the pretty much right in the city now. But my parents. Um. Like I don't know, like Latham, which is a small town, maybe like a twenty-minute drive outside of Albany, like okay. in the suburbs. But the point I was getting at is that, like, when you live someplace for a long time, uh, you know, it's impossible not to develop affection for it. I, I've never really had the, the 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 sense or the feeling that I need to defend where I'm from, or I have some sort of like you know pride based on location but because los angeles gets bagged on so much like i find myself taking a more defensive posture sometimes oh um, yeah but, but plenty I, of my friends they, they can't stand los angeles like yeah. they think you would like they'd rather just die than like move there for some reason which i don't i don't get well that, that's the thing is that like whenever somebody's if you live someplace that people shit on <laughs> it's and, right. and you're there it's like it's kind of hard not to be like hey you know it's okay like I, albany I, is like the quintessential like shithole like that, that yeah like if i tell anybody albany they're like yeah i'm used to it okay. I, I get it so what, <laughs> so what was childhood like for you i mean was it kind of like an like an apple pie american upbringing in a small town or was it like bleak like industrial <laughs> No, 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 no. It, it, it was it was solid. I, I don't have any complaints about my child. It would, it would be boring to really talk about it in detail. It was just like, you know, my parents are still together. Um, they're fairly supportive of, you know, the, the writing stuff, even from the, an early age. They were pretty supportive. Um, yeah, like lived in, in a very healthy, positive environment. Spent yeah. a lot of time playing in the woods, and we lived on the river and stuff like that. So, yeah, all, all all good stuff. You have siblings? Yeah, I'm the oldest of three. So my my brother, um, he's a lawyer in D.C., and then my sister, who's the youngest, she's a college student, okay. and she still lives at home. Okay. So, and uh, like, what kind of kid were you? I mean, were you bookish and a uh, good student, or were you? Yeah, I mean, I would lean towards the bookish. The thing about me, um, I, I'm not big on like self-reflection at all, but like I was always like average in like everything. Like I could always hit like the, the middle road on like, it didn't matter if it was like sports or, you know, my studies in school or like, you know, my parents 
signed me up for like painting lessons and karate lessons, like all that stuff. Like, but I would always be right in the middle. Like, even when I graduated high school, I graduated 200th out of 400 kids. <laughs> it's like unbelievable. Like during basketball, they would like separate, you know, like the shitty kids on one side and like the jocks on the other. And I would go back and forth because they wouldn't know what to do. Like I would dominate on the shitty side and then they would switch me over to the jocks and then I would be like falling over. Like so I was always like right in the middle, which is like scary to think about to be so wonderfully like average. So then I start thinking about writing. I'm like, wow, like maybe I'm just like, oh no, like maybe I'm just riding like the middle here. Like when's that going to run out? So well, no, but I think about this a lot too. I, th- <laughs> I think about this a lot too with like a lot of fear because, um, you know, it, it's it's really easy to feel like in the writing uh, game, especially that like if if you're just disciplined, if you just sit there and do the work while everyone else is procrastinating and tweeting and whatnot, and if you mm-hmm. if you if you can endure the rejection, if you can endure the sleep deprivation, if you can essentially suffer through whatever you need to suffer through, like you can become a really good writer and publish you know really good books, mm-hmm. and, and you know that's mm-hmm. that that kind of uh, you know Horatio Alger type view of it or whatever is uh, is really alluring, and I don't think it's entirely false, but then. What what troubles me and what brought it to my mind is your you know your stories about being the you know in the middle athletically in high school is when I think about uh, sports and I think about these people who uh, make it you know the the very small percentage of human beings who make it into the pro you know the professional ranks and make all this money and and are famous you know athletes that are celebrated you know mm-hmm. they all work hard everybody works hard oh yeah I think hard work is one of the most overvalued. Um, you know, virtues because it's a, you know, mm-hmm. because, because everyone's working hard, like my garbage man. Right. It's a hard. very, it's a very American sentiment yeah, to yeah. the idea of like working to, I mean, I like the idea of saying like, you know, you can always outwork somebody else. Like that, that sounds like really good and all right. Like you can, but you might not be working efficiently and like it's, it is, I know what you're saying like, it is scary. Like maybe the other person's just more talented than you or like maybe maybe they just come from like a pedigree that's better and maybe they're smart like and that's that's hard to think about but in writing like i don't know if you have talent is hard to talk about but like i don't know if you're there and you are working hard and the other thing now is like it's a lot of luck like these books are like lottery tickets and like you know who you surround yourself with and you know like I don't know the breaks that you can get or you don't get like that's that, that's like totally random. Yeah. That's like, the I, thing. I think it's totally, I think it's totally random. Like you were talking about athletes. I mean, you know, the NBA has like maybe, I don't know, 300 people. So that's like, that's the top 300 people in the world that can put a ball in like a, a basketball hoop, like right. out of like billions of people. That's amazing. But like, they're found like that. Those, those are the top people. Like, I, like there's nobody that just like didn't get lucky. Like I know there's tragic stories and that stuff does happen, but like, you know, am I, am I I'm kind of rambling, but like with writing, like I think there's like really, really great books and then no one gives a shit about them because right. the right people didn't tell them they were great. And that's, that's a problem too with like, I think with publishing, like, it, it just didn't work out for them. Like to well, be a great writer, you need so-and-so to say that you're a great writer. That's right. Well, that's the thing is that I think a lot of writers who are really great, um, who might not be great operators, uh, you know, are great at networking and, in, you know, in, you know, infiltrating the, you know, power structures of the media, mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, like knowing the right people might be like an easier way of putting it. 
Uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, nope. and, then, and then ingratiating themselves to them. Like they might not have those social skills or those inclinations. And as a result, you know, their great work winds up flying below the radar, like hopefully to be discovered like posthumously, <laughs> which is depressing. Yeah, right? I don't. I go back and forth because I don't know if that's totally true because the, the idealistic side to me wants to believe that like like really powerful books, I mean, both really like kind of rise to the top or like people will find them. Like they won't just get pushed to the side, but I don't know, man. Like I <laughs> side is just like, there's like 200,000 books published a year right. and like a lot of stuff just gets pushed and the wrong stuff might be hyped, but I don't know. I, I, I want to believe like readers are smart. Like readers will will get it. Like uh, I don't know. I don't that know. sounds bad people, too. But like people like to be told what to like. It's like you know like and and I think like you know there's got to be like a baseline standard of quality. But in the age of social media, it just seems to me as I look at my computer screen every day that there are certain people who are extremely savvy at navigating those mm -hmm. waters and who have like an, a remarkable ability to um yeah but it, it but it also it doesn't change their book it, well, like it doesn't matter how savvy they are or who they're like hanging out with or sleeping with it or who they're, who's going to promote them like it it shouldn't somehow elevate the words that are already printed like how does it how does that work where you can like somehow like out promote your own book or something like make it better than it is or you know what i'm trying to say like I it's do. So weird I, I it's do. a weird situation. But it's weird. Like, but what's weird, too, is that, like, you know, it, like if the thing gets, like, a decent enough review in the New York Times or if you get profiled by so-and-so in Vice or if you – like, those kinds of media uh, plays, like, really matter to people and they confer legitimacy on, like, the average person sitting there. And but then again, it comes yeah. But out. even the, the the things you just mentioned, I, they don't they really don't do that much. Right. Like, right. You, okay. you have to have, like – but I think it is, it's, like – uh, multiple things in a row. Like Sheila Hetty's a really good example of this. That, that's a book that was rejected by like everybody in the U.S. before. Nobody wanted it. I mean, I talked to editors at Penguin and stuff. They 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 all rejected it. Then all of a sudden, it gets like picked back up, and then she gets that like big profile. And was it the New Yorker, the New York Times? She had like no, a big profile. It was the New Yorker. Right. And then like Lena Dunham said something and then all the girl stuff was happening like with that show. And there was a connection there. Like those two things combined, all of a sudden that like blows a person up. Like you have to have like a, a, a combination of like really big things. There was a third thing too that happened with her. I can't remember because now, now that doesn't work out so well. But you know what I'm trying to say? Like you have to have multiple things like, I don't know. Yeah, like the, the the community of writers is like really small, so you have to somehow like get outside of it. Like having a profile or something in Vice and like you know the online stuff. Like I've done stuff recently for you know like the Believer online for, for Crystal Leaders and the Paris Review and a, I mean like a bunch of stuff. But from what I can tell, the book hasn't sold more than like two or three hundred copies. Wow. To be honest, so yeah. it, it doesn't. The idea is like somehow that small amount of like promotion, that circle will, will like expand and, you know, the word of mouth stuff carries, but the reviews and stuff, I don't know. Like you have to, it has to be really big. Like it has to be like a front page in the New York times or like it has to really grab people's attention. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's no, there's no formula. If there was and people would all be doing it or something, but 
Um, what, like, I want to talk to you. I know you've talked about this uh, a lot, you know, in interviews and whatnot. But I want to ask you. Speaking of things that help people blow up, about the Spike Jones option on light boxes, um, mm-hmm. be- because that's the kind of thing that gets people excited. You know, somebody like Spike, whose films appeal to literary people and people who, you know, are fans of indie film and uh, educated, or you know, shop at Whole Foods. <laughs> I feel like, that's, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, when that happened for you, did you have like a crate? Did you have a couple nights where you're like, "Holy shit!" Like, this is happening. Like, oh yeah, yeah. So talk. yeah, yeah. I mean, so yeah. Access was published by Publishing Genius Press, which um, is Adam Robinson, sure. and he printed like maybe 500 copies. Um, and then some of the press, it got good reviews early on. But I did an interview for Bookslut. And that interview caught the attention of Spike Jones's director of development, who had just randomly, this is like a luck thing too. She, like, she was just scanning like stuff online and just happened to like read the interview and think the book sounded interesting. So she was interested in it and then Spike was interested in it and then they went back and forth on it. We didn't know if it was going to happen. They at first rejected it. And then Ray Tintori, who's um, a director, he does a lot of stuff for MGMT, and he recently worked on that movie Beasts of the Southern Wild. Um, so he read it, and then he was like, "I'm interested in this." And he's like a, he's somehow connected to Spike Jones, like that's like a protege. So then Spike was like, "All right, well, I'll be the producer," and then they bought the option. And did you ever, and then did, you ever hap- meet, did you ever meet with them or anything? No, I never. It never got that far. We were supposed to speak on the phone, and then that never happened. I mean, things things fell apart fairly fast for unknown reasons. But um, back to what you originally said, yeah, like there was multiple days where I was like, "Holy shit, I can't believe!" And that's when I had like a crappy like it was like Shane Jones Blogspot dot com or something. And what I <laughs> did is I I like after a day or two because they're like, "Yeah, you can talk about it with people." I put it up on Blogspot, and then like Variety like picked it up and like all these major places picked it up. And then, um, the director developed called and was like, what are you doing? And I was like, what do you mean? I just, you said I could talk about it. And they didn't realize I would do that. And they're like, yeah, everybody's calling spike asking about this movie. He doesn't want to talk about it. And I'm like, so it, it immediately like within like two days got off to a bad start where like spike Jones was angry. And I'm like, all right. And then I don't know if it was like seven or eight months later, they called and they're like, yeah, we're not going to do it. Like it's not moving forward. Like Ray Tintori, he's not working on the script, or it's not it's not turning out. So, wow. but that's that's that, like total that's total luck, and yeah, I mean, um, like Penguin wouldn't have picked the book up. They, I mean, none of that would have happened if it wasn't just for like one man in power says like you know like this is interesting or I have an interest like that that book that blew it out. Right. Well, and it you know, and then that book that book was still didn't. I mean, it probably has sold like seven thousand copies. Yeah, well, that's and it's nice to hear you being candid about that because I think like people need to hear that and like the kind of thing that writers. Oh yeah, writers will often I, conveniently I, I'll gloss talk about over it. that. Yeah, but they'll, they'll, they'll often writers will gloss over that because it feels embarrassing or it's painful or it's like depressing. <laughs> uh, you know, because I yeah, I, but it's still it has to be said like it it has to be out there because. This all goes back to like the idea of being like an MFA kid in Brooklyn, like thinking you're going to make it. Like, you're probably not. Like that that book. Okay, so it had like it got reviews and like I guess it has like a, a very small readership. 
has sold, yes, I, I really don't know. I would say like 7,000 copies. The, the total money I made on that after taxes and everything is about $80,000. That's, that's what I made. And that's almost completely from foreign sales. Wow. Okay. So like that, that's, that's like where we're at. And then the amount of money I've made since then has only drastically, drastically gone down. So like, I just think like, yeah, people need to be honest about like, if you're going to write books and stuff, like, um, do it because you just want to do it and you love it and realize like, you know, this isn't like a, well, it isn't, isn't like a, a lottery ticket. Yeah. Like you'll be lucky. You'll be lucky if your friends even make it through your entire book. <laughs> yeah. like, like that's what people should say. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I like the meta. I like to the comparison to a lottery ticket because I feel that's. I feel that luck is such a strong factor. Uh, it's such a strong factor. How else can you compute? It, it is, but that that's a good and a, a bad mind frame. Like that's probably a very also a very American way to think. Like it's the same, same thing as, you know, in this office building, I could go down to the little corner store and there'll be a line of dudes like playing the, the, the scratchers thinking that they're going to like get their way out or like it doesn't change though. Like there's been studies on, you know, like the population as far as, you know, whatever your parents made and your parents after like whatever their, their, their class, you're not going to get out of it. Like the, the game is like kind of rigged, and with writing, it's kind of the same way. Like those, you know, privileged white kids that have money in the city and stuff, and are, are working for M plus one, and like they're going to promote their friends. Like it's all. It, 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 maybe this is too too depressing. Like, but it's still going <laughs> to. Like that. That's really the the thing. Like the only way you're going to break that up is, all right, you have something like Spike Jones or like something random like that that comes in. Um, or, you know, yeah, the, the, the luck thing, like people just suddenly start start loving you and want to, like, promote you. Um, but it's hard. Like, it, it's really hard. You, you got to that, – that mind frame is scary. Like, it should just be like, all right, I want to publish – like, I want to publish good books that I'm proud of. Like, okay, can we, like, can we just get there? Yeah. Well, yeah, if you can try to find ways to simplify it and, like – this has been a common theme on this show for me and just in my life. I mean, I talk about it all the time. It's just like wrestling with the idea of luck versus like, you know, self-determination and not wanting to like seem like a total, um, uh, I don't know, what's like a total downer where it's, oh, it's all just luck. But then there's also a part of me that feels like there's a lot of humility in admitting that luck is a huge factor because, you know, uh, disavowing luck is another way of saying it was all me. Like I did it. It was right. me. I, I, I didn't say I didn't say that it was all luck. I don't want to come off as that. Yeah. I'm saying like, I mean, I, it all. I guess it comes down to like, well, what is it? What do you want? Like, if you're if you're thinking about like, I don't know, making money or like, you know, getting you know, Knopf to to publish your novel in hardcover. Then all right, I guess then you're starting to think about luck more. Um, but yeah, I guess it's a, it's a combination. It's a, it's a weird, story. I know what you're saying. It's hard to, everybody, everybody thinks about it. I mean, you wouldn't be trying to publish the book, I guess, if you didn't think like something amazing is going to happen. <laughs> like it's always going to be in the back of your head. Like even this guy, I talked to a guy at the party who's a MFA student at Columbia and he was saying too, like, he was constantly thinking about it. Like yeah. he's just, just finishing a novel and being like, well, you know, like FSG might take it and stuff. And like <laughs> the, the numbers are always stacked against you. Yeah. It's very hard. I don't think there's ever been a novel, like a literary, especially a literary novel written. <clears throat> well, any novel, but I, I in, in the process of writing a novel, 
there's always a, at least a few moments where things are going really well and you're thinking to yourself, holy shit, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> like this is going to be this the is, one. This is my ticket to Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> I'm finally going to get out of Albany now, guys. Yeah. No, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, probably, probably not. But you can find a lot of enjoyment in the actual writing. Like that, that's like what you just said. Like as you're writing, you start thinking about that stuff. But like you're on a high and you're like, you're feeling good and you're, you're making something and you're at least, you know, you're not, I don't know, working for some terrible company that's throwing shit out into rivers or something like you're, you're, you're doing something that I think is noble and is like intrinsically good. Like it's just a, a good thing to do. So th- there's, there's value. There's value in that. that. All that other shit around it, like luck and money. It's like, I don't know. You can't control it. Maybe that's why you think about it so much because, you know, you can't control it. Maybe that's what it is. So, okay. So when it comes to like you had this, this success with light boxes, Penguin picked it up, Spike Jones optioned it for a few months and there was like a little bit of media and like it definitely, you know, that sort of news ripples through the very small channel that is like the literary web, you know, the whatever it is. How many people? Is it like 8,000 people? 5,000? I don't know. I, I really want, I a, know. I want a number, but it's a small number of people who we, we all read the same blogs and keep up with the same news. But that sort of news definitely, you know, people hear it and it registers with them. Um, so then you had that, you made your $80,000, and then subsequently you have made less. Um, does it affect the process for you? Is it harder to write? Have you found a way to, like, block all that stuff out? I mean, and, and is writing, like, so truly enjoyable for you? that uh you you really don't care i mean like because i think writing for some people is a, a real pain in the ass but like somehow they they have to do it at the foundation i truly enjoy it and love it or i i want to be i mean like the last thing i published was like a thing on html giant of like writers like um refrigerators so like that's the level i'm at like i i like doing ridiculous stuff like that like there's no way i'm going to make money on something like that like i i, I like doing it in the books I I love to write them. I do. Um, even though like I'll struggle with stuff or like, yeah, if I start thinking about the money things, I guess it kind of gets depressing, but, um, to answer your question simply, yeah, I, I love doing it. And so it's so like you, you write easily. You don't dread the keyboard. You'll sit down whenever you usually can. not. Yeah. No. I mean, even with like crystal leaders, I mean, I've could have, pursued like a bigger publisher and then i mean i love two dollar radio i think they're yeah probably the most interesting press publisher of fiction in the country and i mean i've been following this stuff for like you know 15 years and i don't think i've ever seen a press like them really i mean that put out such beautiful books so like i was dealing with my agent at william morris uh, who was going back and forth on crystal leaders for like a year or more on like what to do with it and eventually I was just like, well, I'm going to send it to $2 radio myself, which I did. And they accepted it three days later. So wow. obviously I'm not doing it for like the money or like the thing. Like there's no, or if, if I was, I would have like waited even more of like, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm not going to publish this unless I get my 10,000, but right. like, it doesn't, that, that doesn't matter. Like you'd have to get so much, I'm going to go off on a tear again, but like, you're still going to be faced with a blank page and you're still going to be basically the same person. If you have a $2,000 advance or even like, a, you know, most books only get like a 15 to $20,000 advance now for fiction novels. So like, all right, you've got that. And that's going to be, you know, 15% of that your agent's going to take, then they're going to tax it. And then you're probably going to get that 
broken up in multiple checks over the next two years. <laughs> so you're going to be able to like, you'll go to Target more and you'll buy some more like cheeseburgers and go to Shake Shack and stuff. But like, you're still going to be the same person living in the same area with the same problems writing a book, right? So like, I don't know. I thought about all like why I'll just go to a press that I love that I know will support me and like it'll feel right. Yeah, well, and $2 Radio, I mean, come on. They're great. Yeah. Are you just saying that? No, That's... no, no. I love them. I've, <laughs> I've been a fan for, for years. I mean, you like everything they put out, um, you know, is so well done and they have great taste. So I think that reputation, and I've also heard from people who work in, um, you know, the bigger houses in New York, like everyone's paying attention to what they put out. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's crazy. Like you were talking about how many people the community, I mean, I have no idea, but it seems like anybody I talk to or like some friends that work in publishing, like they always know about like the next $2 radio book. Like they, they, it's, you know, like Cal Morgan, who I know you talk to, like he's always, he's like really supportive. Like he always wants to see what they're doing next. Right. So like you, you get a lot of, you get a lot of, you get a lot of attention. Well, well, it's been fun talking to you, man. I, uh, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, you, you know, you're writing, you're, you're able to enjoy it and that you're still putting books out and, uh, you know, and that you're happy in Albany. Thank you. Um, and I wish you well on whatever comes next. All right. <laughs> Good. <time. laughs> is this the end? Are we ending right here? This is it, I guess. Uh, I, I didn't know. I didn't know if there was more. I expected, I, I don't know. Yeah. We've been talking for a long time. I could, I could keep going, but yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, you guys, there you go. That's Shane Jones. His novel is called Crystal Eaters. <laughs> Why do I think that sounds like a woman's name? It's called Crystal Eaters. Check it out. It's available now from $2 Radio. You can find him online uh, over at Twitter where his handle is at Jones. That's H-I Shane Jones. Go tweet at him. Go DM him. Go post a link to this episode on Twitter. What do you think about that? Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always. For all the good music, be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And uh, don't forget about the app, the uh, free official Other People app, the free official app of this program. It's available wherever apps are available. It's the best way to listen to this uh, podcast. Here's why. You get the app on your device, and then everything just happens automatically. New episodes automatically upload. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. Uh, And then, best of all, you can sign up for premium right there within the app, and you can stream the archives. Every single episode available at your fingertips wherever you go, whenever you want. So you get the app, you get the most recent 50 episodes of this show free. You sign up for premium, which costs like a pittance, then you have access to everything. So go get the app uh, if you so desire. And uh, if you want to email me, once again, the the address is letters at otherppl.com. So, uh, I'm, I'm fading. Can you hear it? I kind of want to put my head down on my desk and sleep. I'm a better human being with sleep. I'm not ashamed to admit that. I want my eight hours. Nine if I can get it. I'm an older man. I'm a middle-aged man. I just turned uh, 39 years old on August 1st. Thanks for all the birthday wishes. Actually, I didn't get any, but you guys didn't know. I feel like sleep makes you younger. And lack of sleep makes you older makes you look older I need sleep did I mention that please remember that John Reed died of typhus and that Louise Bryant died of a cerebral hemorrhage that's it for now thanks to Shane Jones for being here thanks to two dollar radio thanks to you guys for listening I'll be back again soon
uh, with another episode, with another conversation. It just keeps going. We're now in the, uh, what, the 300s, episode 301. Will the podcast reach episode 400? I don't know. That's what makes this so exciting. (laughs) It's a cliffhanger. Maybe I should just stay awake until the next time I have to record and just you guys can just witness my complete mental deterioration. Kind of like this song. I feel like this song is like the soundtrack to my insomnia. This is what plays in my head, essentially. This is the emotional texture of what's going on in my brain when I'm awake at 3.30 in the morning, staring at the ceiling in the darkness. Everyone's going to (laughs) die. That's an awful thought that just occurred to me. It's a weird world. What's going on here? Anybody have any clues? Don't mean to freak you out. Just saying. Just trying to keep it real, America. America.